How does someone become a part of God's kingdom? What is required? You know, why don't some people get into God's kingdom? And you might simplify it down to one reason, and that being faith. The one word that sums up the reason why people get in and why people don't is faith. And while scripture does agree that it's a matter of faith, scripture also talks about the fact that God's kingdom is actually inherited by his children. And so once you see how this inheritance language relates to both Jesus and Israel um, and the future kingdom of God on the earth, it will make so much more sense of God's eternal kingdom and the fact that we are a part of this spiritual kingdom that will never, ever end because the things of God's kingdom are spiritually perceived. There's a lot that I want to share today, and I'm just going to give you the general outline for today because some of you might not know why we're going here, uh, why talk about the spiritual kingdom, why why did the thumbnail say divine access, because frankly, the way we're going to communicate this idea of God's kingdom is going to bring us back to the Garden of Eden. And when you understand what humanity forfeited in Genesis 3, you'll understand what Jesus has brought us back to and even beyond when it relates to his kingdom. He brings us into something better. I believe that what Christ brings us into by his own work is superior to what Adam and Eve had in the garden. But um, that might be for another day. The point of me relating this to the, the Garden of Eden is to say God has brought us back into fellowship with him through his son. He's brought us back the way into the garden, you know, blocked off in Genesis 3, has now been opened up to those who have faith in the, in the Messiah because he's the way in. And so, you know, what does it mean that God's kingdom is inherited by his children? You're going to be, see a lot of inheritance language today. You might see verses that you've never really considered in light of this, and you never process the way that hopefully I'll be able to convey. And, uh, you know, what does it even look like to inherit God's kingdom? This inheritance language can be foreign to us um, in some ways, the way that it's actually conveyed in Scripture. And then how does this relate to Israel as a nation? Because we ended yesterday, was it yesterday? Yeah, we ended yesterday talking about Israel as a nation and how we're actually somewhat grafted into the heritage, the history, the rich promises given to the patriarchs because all the spiritual counterparts of the physical benefits of Israel are accomplished in Christ and realized in Jesus. And so, you know, the other question we're going to answer today, I'm just going to give you a bunch of questions to look forward to us answering, um, is, is there a distinction between national Israel and the people, the children of God? You know, so what I want to start off with is this, and there's a reason I'm starting here, because the kingdom of God is inherited. But what that means is, what that assumes is that not everyone will inherit God's kingdom, because not everyone is a child of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous, okay, those outside of Christ, dead in sin, they will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, there you go, YouTube's going to ban this, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's repeated twice. So when he describes the unrighteous, he goes on to explain what the unrighteous life is characterized by. The majority of one's life, if they're unrighteous, is just characterized by these sins that keep them out of the kingdom. And so it's not just sin, but it's unbelief that keeps someone from entering into the kingdom of God. But the unrighteous don't inherit God's kingdom. First Corinthians 15, 50, I'll give you a butt ton of scripture. We're going to look at some like thick passages today. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood, human effort, human ability, human striving, human beings on their own. That's why John 3 will say you have to be born again. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom because, you know, the, the perishable, uh, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. God's kingdom is eternal and spiritual and shakable, right? It is, it is something that doesn't fade. Therefore, in order to be a part of that, you also have to fit that and be compatible with that. Your nature has to be compatible with the nature of God's kingdom, that being spiritual and eternal. Which is why we'll see in 1 Peter that the word of God produces that which is imperishable and eternal because we're born again through that word and by the power of the Spirit. And what the Spirit of God produces by his word when we believe is a new creation that is imperishable and spiritual and can inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.21, it says, um, the works of the flesh are evident. He goes on to list pretty much what we saw in 1 Corinthians 6, but he adds enmity, sensuality, strife, jealousy, sorcery, 
rivalries, dissension, fits of anger, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before. Those who do such things, another translation will say practice such things, and are unrighteous, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because you'll see throughout their life, they don't actually bear the fruit of the Spirit ever. So over and over, Scripture tells us that not everyone inherits the kingdom of God. This is not about accomplishing. This is not about achieving. This is not about intellectually stimulating yourself to know enough. This is not educating yourself into the kingdom. This is about believing in the Son. Ephesians 5.5 says, You may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, it's interesting that every passage referring to the unrighteous involves sexual immorality being addressed. Uh, Everyone who is impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, what I want to clarify is Paul in each of these passages, and yes, Paul's the author of all these passages, of course, the Spirit of God influencing him and, you know, inspiring him to write this. But he is, I want you to make a distinction in your mind. There's a difference between someone who is unrighteous and practices sin because they're outside of Christ and have no faith versus those who are in Christ and struggle and fight and deal with the temptations that bombard them on a daily basis and sometimes give in, but rely on Christ for forgiveness and look to God in repentance. There is a difference between someone who practices sin uh, habitually, uh, unrepentantly, without any remorse or conviction, versus the person who is in Christ and has a battle, a struggle with sin throughout their life. Luke chapter 18, and that, that's who Paul's addressing, is the unrighteous. They're literally identified and defined by their sin. And that is not true of someone who's in Christ. We're not defined by our sinfulness. We're actually identified with the righteousness of Jesus. We're defined by his work, okay? Luke 18, 16, and 17. This is what Jesus says. Jesus called to them after the disciples rebuked the children. Bunch of jerks, by the way. Jesus called to them saying, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. To such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child in humility, in dependence, in innocence, uh, admitting their inability, right? Looking to one who can give them that in trust and reliance. Whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So the way you enter into the kingdom is by receiving the kingdom. The way you receive the kingdom is by inheritance. And the way you inherit the kingdom is very simply through faith. There is a logical process in the mind of God that all of these things come together. And I don't want to boil everything down to some math equation, but it is easy for us to conceive that. That it is through faith, right? We're granted the inheritance. We receive that. And that's our entrance into the kingdom. It's by inheritance. It's portioned out. The way that God would allot the land to Israel by tribe, he would portion it out. And the lots would fall to each tribe, you know, and the land and all of that. It was allotted by inheritance. They were inheriting what God had made way for them to get. They didn't work for it. They didn't achieve it. God graciously gifted the land to them because he promised Abraham he would. It's the very same thing with the kingdom. Very same thing. In fact, we see in the promised land a type and a shadow of the spiritual kingdom of God. So, number one, God's kingdom is not inherited by everyone because not everyone has faith. The second thing you need to know is God's kingdom is inherited by his children. And you go, duh, you just said this. Well, let me explain. It's given as an inheritance. Let me show you some scriptures to explain what I mean. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 and 5 says this. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Those who are, admit their spiritual poverty and need for Jesus, right? Their own spiritual deficiency. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It says, if the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Who? Those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Not just here on the earth through the trials, but eventually, all at once, all their tears will be wiped away. All the sadness will be gone. All the mourning will be done away with because God will comfort them eternally and perfectly in the, in the new creation. Blessed are the meek, 
for they shall inherit the earth. Interesting. It's as if being comforted here, inheriting the earth here, is what it means to have the kingdom of heaven. When we think of heaven, we usually fly right past the earth that God has made, and we ignore the world that we're in, and we go, heaven, heaven, heaven. Actually, heaven's coming to the earth. God's going to make a new earth. God's going to make new heavens, and they'll collide, and heaven and earth will be one in Christ. That's what Ephesians teaches. And so new creation will come about through the Messiah, and we'll get to live on the earth. We'll inherit the earth. So part of having the kingdom of heaven involves inheriting the earth, where we'll get to reign alongside Christ in the new creation. Matthew 25, 34, and I'm just, I'm just going to kind of um, not fly through them, but not take time to unpack all these, because these are just supporting the main idea that, yeah, God's kingdom is inherited by his children. It's given by God as an inheritance. Matthew 25, 34, it says, Then the king, talking about the goats and the sheep at the end, right? The wicked on the left, the righteous on the right. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. So the king here is Jesus. You are blessed by my father. What does it mean to be blessed by the father? Well, they get to inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for them from the foundation of the world. So the kingdom is inherited by the righteous because it's given by the Father as a blessing. We see this all throughout the life of the patriarchs. When you understand the social structure and the patriarchal society of the Old Testament, it makes so much more sense of what Jesus says. Matthew 19, 29, it says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake, in other words, you've given something up for the kingdom, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And this is not to say inheritance is achieved by giving up enough. This is, this is to say that someone who's inherited eternal life along the way of their life in this world will give up things as the Lord leads. Our life will be marked by sacrifice. So the idea is in, uh, eternal life is inherited. The kingdom is inherited. Whether you say the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, they're synonymous. They're used interchangeably by the gospel authors. I've heard someone try and build a case that they're not the same thing, and it's really, it falls apart. Hebrews 1.14, it says, referring to the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And you go, we already have salvation in Christ. Yeah, but it's not been fully realized yet. When the wrath of God comes upon the wicked and the unrighteous and all the rebels, both in the heavenly places and on the earth, when God's wrath comes, we'll actually get to be safe, tucked away in Christ from that. We don't experience the wrath and the judgment and the condemnation of God. We don't experience punishment. Romans 8 says he's taken all of that for us. Jesus has. So there's no condemnation left. So we'll see our salvation fully realized in God destroying the wicked, but sparing us as his children. This is what Romans 8 says. You know, if, if Jesus came and died for his enemies, how much more will God save his very children when he comes to judge the world? That's the idea. In fact, Hebrews 12, 28, 11 chapters later says, hey, let's be grateful. Why? My life sucks. Well, for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. You are a part of an unshakable kingdom, but that kingdom you're a part of was received through faith. You didn't work for it, achieve it, educate yourself into it. You didn't go, I'm going to try and scheme my way. God said, hey, I got a kingdom. You want it or not? And you go, yeah, I, I believe. I take you at your word. He goes, sweet. Here you go. And you're like, that it was very easy. He goes, yeah, it's a gift. That's what gifting is. It's not hard on your part. You just got to be humble enough to receive it. Therefore, let's offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So God being a consuming fire relates to the fact that we're a part of an unshakable kingdom. Why? Because everything outside of his kingdom, everything outside of God's good creation that doesn't belong, talk about the enemy and his demons, and, and you can talk about their origin, talk about the wicked and the unrighteous and those who are not a part of God's kingdom and have no place in in God's family because they have no faith. God will consume everything that does not have alignment with him, his word, his character, his gospel, his son, and his kingdom. It gets consumed. 
and not in a, oh, it's been redeemed kind of way, in a destructive kind of way. It's removed and taken out of God's good world. And what remains is a kingdom that can't be shaken. And if you've taken refuge in the Son through faith, you are have taken refuge in the one who can't be shaken because he's, he's actually the foundation of that kingdom. It's incredible, man. Yeah, the wrath of God is coming on the earth. Yeah, judgment is coming. Yeah, everyone's going to stand before the throne. And yeah, everything that doesn't belong and doesn't isn't conformed, you know, to the character and the word of God, does it's going to be consumed by God who is a consuming fire. Or you can have faith and take refuge in Jesus and find yourself spared on that day. So Jesus tells a little parable about two sons. You know, one, the father says to both of them, go and do something. The first son goes, I will, but he doesn't actually go. The second one goes, no, but he changes his mind. And Jesus is making a point about tax collectors and and prostitutes and sinners entering God's kingdom. And in the mind of the Pharisees, it's impossible. Jesus goes, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said the first. The one who, you know, said he wouldn't, but he did anyway. I mixed them up. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they go into the kingdom of God before you do. Talking to the self-righteous, hypocritical, religious leaders of his day. Who do not know God. Who do not know his word. Who think they do, and they rely on Moses, and they trust in Moses. But actually the law is what condemns them. And they're looking to what condemns them to save them. And they're very far from God. Very, very, very far. And Jesus intends to address that. But let me take you to John 3. This is cool. Jesus talks to Nicodemus. And this is where we get into the whole conversation of, what about, is there, an, is there a true distinction in Scripture between national Israel and spiritual Israel? Are, can we, is it truly biblical and honest and accurate to say that we are spiritual Israel because it's that can get people kind of confused and frustrated and like but we're not Israelites John chapter 3 says this Jesus tells Nicodemus look unless one is born again he can't see the kingdom of God it's not possible remember flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom so what can that which is spirit that which is imperishable, that which is eternal, which God gives through his son. And he makes you a new creation to be fit and compatible with his kingdom. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Be born? I don't want to do that. Jesus answered, truly, 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 I say to you, unless one is, I can only imagine what Jesus could have said that he didn't. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. Now, the whole point of this little discussion is Jesus is addressing Nicodemus' reliance on his descent from Abraham. Going, look, sure, you're born an Israelite. That doesn't do you any good in the grand scheme of things when you stand before God. Both Jew and Gentile have to be born again, or even Jews can't see the kingdom without being born of the Spirit. You can't rely on ethnicity. You can't rely on physical heritage. You can't rely on what you have and what physical benefits you have as a nation. It doesn't do you any good. And we talked about this yesterday. So what does it mean to be born again? John 1.12 says, To all who received him, remember the kingdom is received. You receive the son, you receive his kingdom with him as the king. To all who received him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood remember flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God it's a heavenly spiritual rebirth by the Holy Spirit who comes down resurrects our spirit makes us new creation and boom now we're compatible with the presence of God now we're fitted for the kingdom of God because flesh and blood perish they are they, f- they fade. They can't stand when God's eternal kingdom comes. But glorified bodies resurrected by Jesus through the Spirit, that can. That can. So if you want to be a part of the kingdom, you have to receive Christ, period. 
it's, um, I won't say it's less about the kingdom and more about Jesus, but if in fact, hypothetically, we had to choose between the two, I'm, I'm not saying you have to, of course, one comes with the other, but it's the emphasis is on Jesus as king more than what comes attached to that. More than this, this beautiful kingdom we're a part of, it's about him ruling as king. And of course, attached to him ruling as a kingdom. Duh. We get that. But let me take you to something else. What I'm about to show you is a bunch of scriptures that prove this, okay? God's kingdom is given to those who have the faith of Abraham. In other words, spiritual Israel. And we looked at a, a little bit yesterday of how the kingdom of Israel as a nation and whatever physical benefits, inheritance, history, the whatever, you know, truly matters in eternity, it kind of gets uh, assimilated into what Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is here. And so we talked about how the nation of Israel fits into that and what's, but here's what I want to show you. There is biblical precedence to say that being born again, uh, becoming children of God, inheriting the kingdom, all this language um, is to say that only those who are true spiritual Israel, those of us who have faith, both Jew and Gentile, only spiritual Israel gets to inherit the kingdom. Outside of that, anyone in unbelief, anyone in, who is unrighteous outside of Christ, including the nation of Israel, does not have access to God's eternal kingdom. Because it's not about flesh, it's not about ethnicity and race and ability and education and performance and skill set and obedience. It's about faith, which will produce the fruit of obedience from a place of security and not striving to earn eternal life by the law. Ephesians 2.11, and I'm going to read this whole section. Remember I told you we were reading thick passages this morning? Buckle up. Buckle up and put the belt of truth on. Make it a seatbelt. Ephesians 2.11, Therefore remember, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision. It was a demeaning name and label by what is called the circumcision, which was an exalting label. We are the circumcision of God. We're talking about Israel here, who had the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision, the physical mark of belonging to God, all of that. So you'd look down, this is what David says to you know, Goliath, as he's about to chop his head off and, and slay him, he goes, you uncircumcised Philistine, I'm going to take you down. And the birds are going to kind of eat you up. So it's a way that Israel, trusting in their ethnic identity, would look down on pagan nations who didn't have that standing. Of course, Gentiles could be grafted into whatever degree of connection God allowed, they could come in and assimilate into the nation of Israel, but it was never the same as being born a true Israelite. So either way, circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ. He's talking to Gentiles. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. I want to focus on this. What Paul emphasizes here is being separated from the commonwealth of Israel, the covenants of promise. Why does that matter? Is Paul saying that now in Christ you're connected to these things? Or at one time you were disconnected from them and you were like, bummer, but now it doesn't matter because you're in Christ and those things have no relevance. Which is he saying? If you look at Romans chapter 9, which is what we went through yesterday. We looked at all the exclusive benefits of Israel as a nation, right? All the stuff they had, all the different, you know, blessings just from being the chosen nation you had. That They would refer to that as the commonwealth, the covenants of promise, the, the different ways of saying, hey, our exclusive benefits as, as God's chosen nation, you Gentiles were actually cut off from that. Having no hope and without God in the world. Wow, Paul, that's kind of rough. But now in Christ, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Whoa. For he himself is our peace. Now it's not about ethnic distance and physical geographical distance from the temple or the tabernacle. You've been brought near spiritually by the blood of Christ. This is, the, this is exactly what Jesus says in John 4. 
when he tells the woman at the well, look, you question about where we're supposed to worship. Neither here nor on this mountain. It's not going to matter. All who are going to worship God are going to worship him in spirit and truth. It's not about location and sacred space anymore. It's about you becoming a part of the temple of God and worshiping where he calls you. Jesus is our peace. He has made us both one. And you go, that doesn't say Jew and Gentile have become Jew. Watch. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What kept Gentiles away from what? The exclusive covenants of promise, the commonwealth of Israel. God himself. This is the key. Jesus has brought us near to the Father. That's what matters. But with that does involve some other things. How did Jesus do that? Well, by abolishing the law of commandments. I thought he didn't come to abolish the law. Conversation for another day. Expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Remember, neither Jew nor Gentile, doesn't matter, race, gender, anyone can come into the kingdom now. You just have to be born of the spirit and become new creation or new humanity. That's what matters. So it's not, are you Gentile, are you Jew, are you, do you physically descend from Abraham or do you not? It's, are you spiritually born again? Are you a new creation? Are you fitted for the kingdom of God? Because this new man takes the place of both. Unbelieving Jew, unbelieving Gentile, that doesn't mean your ethnicity is abolished completely and now it has no bearing at all, no value, no purpose, nothing at all, no distinction. It means what matters ultimately is you are in Christ. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the hostility that he referred to was the dividing wall abolished by Christ, uh, Jesus being the Kool-Aid man of heaven there, breaking down those walls. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. So there are those who are far off, Gentiles. There are those who are near, both ethnically and physically, to the temple and all the benefits of Israel, that being the Israelites. And Jesus preaches peace to both, which means what? Both Jew and Gentile need peace with God. Hmm? For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That's the key. That's all that matters is, do you have access to the Father now? If you do, you're part of his kingdom and family. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens. Fellow citizens. That means they're already citizens in this kingdom that you're joining. And you're being grafted into this spiritual family tree. If you were to put it on a whiteboard and go, ah, here, there's my grandma. Here's my spiritual great-grandma. She was weird. But here's the family tree. Now you're grafted in as if you've always belonged. You're fellow citizens of the kingdom with the saints. But beyond that, you're also members of God's household. That seems to be a layer deeper. That seems to be a step further. It's one thing to be a part of God's kingdom. Cool. It's another thing to be in his family and to have him as your father. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. So I start off by saying, by using that passage, because when I say we are spiritual Israel, that's all I'm referring to were new creation. But when we get to Romans, when we get to Galatians, the language used is pretty clear. The way that the biblical authors refer to those who are in Christ. Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. Okay, watch. If that first covenant had been faultless, the author here distinguishing between the, the first covenant and not the renewed covenant, but the new covenant. Had to throw that in there. <laughs> there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He finds fault with them. The people who couldn't actually, you know, <clears throat> follow the terms of the covenant. When he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Lots of people restrict this new covenant idea to just Israel as a nation because of the fact that the author here quoting from Jeremiah 31, references primarily Israel and Judah, which is to say the entire nation of Israel is in focus here. 
Who is God making a new covenant with? In focus, in context, is the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And they restrict the covenant to that because no one else is listed. Ah, read on. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. They did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make looking forward in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 and Deuteronomy 29, all foreshadowing, prophesying of the new covenant that will come in Christ. This is what God says about that. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I'll write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, shaking him by the collar. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Why? How? For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, the Lord says. I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new, he makes the first one obsolete. Yeah? And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now this covenant if you read the New Testament, it's not just for the house of Israel nationally. It's not just for ethnic Israelites. It's for anyone who would have the faith of Abraham and believe in the Son for salvation. And you go quite the stretch. Well, if I can prove that, then what we have here is the way. Now you can say, well, he's only talking about Israel here, but that doesn't mean the covenant is only for them. He's only addressing Israel. That's one possibility for sure. The other possibility is that he's actually referring to spiritual Israel, those who would have the faith of Israel. Here's why, okay? And I am being honest, there are, there are different interpretive possibilities here. I'm not going to say mine's the only legitimate one. But Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 through 9, I'm going to continue on, and we're going to see if my interpretation of that passage holds any water. Okay, let Scripture interpret Scripture. You, you read this yourself. Don't just take what I'm saying. Uh, at face value, like actually search the scriptures. Galatians 3, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Those of faith in the nation of Israel only or those of faith in general? Well, Galatians is addressing both Jews and Gentiles. So when he says those of faith, it is a general statement. Anyone in, in humanity, any image bearer of God who has the faith of Abraham is what? Considered a son of Abraham the offspring of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham spiritually. So though you don't fit into the physical family tree and you're like, I don't physically descend from Abraham, that's fine. Do you spiritually descend from Abraham? I'll explain as we tackle this a little more. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. So guess what? Gentiles are in view here, right? Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's a crazy thought in and of itself. That the good news, we, we take gospel nowadays and we, we take all our cultural understanding and just import it into that word. It just meant good news. So there was good news preached to Abraham, which was what? The good news was, in you all the nations will be blessed. But that's not just a general good news, like, ah, God shared some good news with Abraham. This is the good news regarding his son, his kingdom, salvation, and righteousness, and the nations were all given to Abraham in this statement. In you, all the nations shall be blessed. Now, while that statement is very uh, short, it speaks to all the different dimensions of the gospel. God wanting the nations, God sending his son to be the true blessing on humanity, to bring salvation and righteousness and every other blessing that accompanies him and him descending from Abraham physically to be the true offspring that was prophesied in the Old Testament. So those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. And you go, okay, cool. He's just saying you're descendants of Abraham spiritually. Mm-hmm. Galatians three twenty-seven and 29. As many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So what is your main identifying marker? When God looks at you, who or what does he see? How does he identify you? What defines you? Jesus. 
and his work. The work of Christ is what the Father sees. The righteousness of Christ is what he sees. The right standing Jesus the Son has with the Father, he sees that in you. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, whether you go economic status, where you go where you go ethnicity, whether you go gender and standing in society, none of those things eternally matter and have bearing on what God says about you on the day of judgment. All that matters is you're one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, this is the this is the connection that Paul makes. If you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. There's so much to unpack, and we're going to do that. But I want you to notice the key elements here that we're going to unpack. Being heirs, the element of promise, the component of descending from Abraham, and then being Christ's through faith. So if you have faith in the Messiah, and you become, you put on Christ, and you're grafted into Christ, and you're in Christ now, and if he's the physical true offspring of Abraham, both physically and spiritually, then you are grafted into Abraham's lineage as well. And whatever promises were given to Abraham that are accomplished and realized by Jesus, those become applied to you now because you inherit those promises by being grafted into through faith. Okay, Romans 2, 28. I know this can get pretty tedious. Some of you have already tuned out. But when you understand this, it is pretty sweet. Okay. Romans 2, 28 and 29. It says, look, one is a Jew who is, uh, no one is a Jew. Forgive me, I almost completely butchered this. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. So if you're addressing the physical, if you're addressing the material, if you're addressing the, the, the racial, ethnicity, all of that, that is not what determines whether or not someone is truly a Jew. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So what does Paul say in Romans 2? True circumcision is spiritual. True Jewish identity, as it relates to being in God's family, is spiritual in nature and not just physical. Physically descending from Abraham, from Jacob, from from the line of Judah, it doesn't matter when it's all said and done and you stand before God. Romans 9, 6 through 8, it says, and this all relates to God's kingdom. Because we talked about how the kingdom was taken from them and given to those who will bear the fruits. And this is exactly what Jesus is speaking to. Romans 9, 6 through 8. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel actually belong to Israel. So you can go, well, he's talking about Jews in Romans 2. Okay, well now he's addressing Israel specifically. Jacob. So you can go, you can bring Abraham into this. You can bring uh, Judah into this. You can bring uh, Israel into this. For Paul, he's going to tackle them all. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they're his physical offspring, right? Because even through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, Paul's making the argument, Abraham didn't just have one son, he had two. And technically, Ishmael was older than Isaac. Ishmael was technically, chronologically, his firstborn. But Isaac was his firstborn in terms of inheritance, allotment, carrying the name, the lineage, the seed of the Messiah. Isaac was the chosen offspring by promise. Ishmael was not. So, if that's true, and Isaac is the one through whom you know, the true offspring are named, then it's not about descending from Abraham. That's not enough. Otherwise, Ishmael would be lumped into this, but he's not. Verse 8 says, this means 
It is not the children of the flesh who are the children. Look, look at the contrast here. It is not the children of the flesh, right, who are the children of God. Actually, I'm going to highlight this. Not. I don't want to confuse you guys. Highlight that in blue. The children of God are not tr- just children. We talked about this. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom. You have to be born again. The children of the promise are counted as offspring. So you have children of promise versus children of flesh. You have those who belong to Israel and those who merely descend from Israel, right? Those who are true offspring of Abraham, just like Isaac, versus those who are like Ishmael and just physically descend from Abraham. This is, this is the whole point, is that to belong to Israel, to belong to Abraham, to be in Christ spiritually through faith is to be identified as such, as belonging to the patriarchs, the promises that come with that. And you go, I'm not convinced. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. I just want you to think about these things. Philippians 3.3, 3, it says, for we are the circumcision. And you go, I don't like that. Well, spiritual circumcision in Romans 2 is what really matters. That's all he's saying. Is that your heart has, you've had a heart transplant. You don't have a heart of stone anymore. You're no longer Elsa. You have a new heart of flesh. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. And we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There you go. He's talking to Israelites. He's actually talking to a Jewish Gentile combo community in Philippi, which is going to be primarily Gentile, actually. And he's saying we, as the children of God. You can refer to children of God as the true circumcision, as true spiritual Israel, as a true Jew, as a true child of Abraham, as a true child of Jacob or Israel. I mean, the list goes on and on. None of these are wrong, and neither of them are, are complete in and of themselves. They address different dimensions of the history of God's people throughout the timeline of God's plan. That's all. That's all. It, it, the gospel authors will do this. They'll address Jacob. They'll address Moses. They'll address Abraham. They'll address David. The, the big names where you have their banners hanging on your wall and you have undies with their faces on it, the big superheroes of your faith are who the gospel authors directly connect to Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he reveals himself as being the better version of everyone. Boom, 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 boom. Because there's different dimensions of our faith highlighted by those characters and their stories that there is a rich history for us to explore, but also there's a rich history for us to be grafted into. So it's as if the history of Israel nationally, because Jesus being the true Israelite and the true human and the true child of Abraham and the true seed of the woman, it's as if the history of Israel becomes our own spiritually because it made way for Christ as the foundation. And everything he does is built on that. Does that make sense? <clears throat> Open the chat and I see Ken's jokes. I should not have done that. Okay. Hebrews 1, 2, it says we are... So I want you to think about this. The logic goes like this. I'm going to look at a, a thick passage, thick with two C's. God's kingdom is inherited by chill, his children. Okay. It's given as an inheritance. God's kingdom is given to those who have the faith of Abraham, who are the true spiritual Israel. And we are the true spiritual Israel in Jesus because Jesus is the true heir. This is where all these verses just collide for me. It's, it's incredible. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, so all of this is built around him. He's the promised one. He's the heir. He's the rightful ruler. He's God in the flesh. He's the one who owns all things. He's the one who brings salvation. It's all about Jesus. Don't get me wrong. All this other stuff is great, and it's great to talk about, but we can't lose sight of what matters ultimately, Christ. So I want you to look at, I'm someone who likes to look at things functionally. I want to know the logistics behind something, like systematically break something down for me, and I'll sit there and watch you do it. I love understanding how things work. So I want to do that for you. I want to break this, this whole process of being born again and children of God and being adopted and inheritance and how is Jesus the center of it. I want to kind of break it apart and show you each component and then rebuild it again. 
Hebrews 1, 2. This is talking about Jesus, the son, the true heir. It says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom God appointed the heir of all things. This is what it means for Jesus to be the only begotten son. He's the unique one. He's the only one in, in, in the class that he fills. He's the only kind in its own class, you might say. The only one-of-a-kind God-man appointed to be all the different things he is. There's only one. This is the language used of Isaac. He's the only begotten of Abraham. But Abraham had multiple children. So he's not the only son. He's the only begotten. The unique one that God will choose to bring the seed of the Messiah through. But not necessary. He's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom he created the world. Jesus being the word of God made flesh, right? The living word. He's the means by which God brought the world into existence. Jesus is. Alongside that, Jesus is the rightful heir, the one who inherits all that his father owns, which by the way, is literally everything. Everything that exists rightfully belongs to God. All the promises of God find their yes. This is 2 Corinthians 1. I should have told you what we're doing. 2 Corinthians 1. Think about Jesus being the heir. The one who rightfully inherits the estate of his father. 2 Corinthians 1.20. It says, All the promises of God given to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Jacob, to Noah, to Isaac, to David, to all, the list goes on and on and on. All the promises of God find their yes in him. It's as if Jesus makes those promises a reality and brings, he's the substance of those promises. He realizes and accomplishes those promises. That's why it is through Jesus that we utter our amen. Let it be. May it be, I agree, to God for his glory. All the promises of God. Now think about this with me. Jesus being the heir of all things, including all the promises of God, finding their yes in him. So if I'm in Christ, like I said, this is the language we've been looking at. It's as if you spiritually descend from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the promises given to the patriarchs and their offspring now apply to you because they were mainly about Jesus. And if you're in him, then all those promises become realized in him for you. This is why Ephesians 3, 6 will say what it does. Okay. This mystery that Paul preaches is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Now, when you think of heir as an Israelite hearing this, knowing your Hebrew Bible, all you're thinking about is all that God has promised the patriarchs. You're going, our forefathers were promised this the estate of you know God being their father. Why, why are Gentiles coming into this like they've always been here? That's the mystery, is that this has always been God's plan to bring the blessing from heaven through his son to the nations. So instead of the nations being disinherited and dissolved and, and all of that and divided, they're finding unity back to the father in the son. And Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body. Now, you really have to understand, knowing the Israelites' history, knowing Israel's history as a nation, all that they've endured, all that they've suffered, all that they've gone through, the, the difficulty and hardship the patriarchs and forefathers had to face, and all the stuff God did even with them and through them and for them, all of a sudden, the new kid on the block, the Gentiles, show up super late to the party, not even looking for it necessarily. And God goes, hey, you guys want to come in? And it, national Israel's going, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is the whole parable of the laborers sent into the vineyard. The master goes and find laborers, finds laborers early in the morning. And then periodically throughout the day, every couple hours, he finds some new laborers. Then like when the day's about to end, he finds a few more, which is representative of the Gentiles, I think, especially when you read it in context. And then the last ones, get paid as much as those who had worked all day. 
that's the mystery of the gospel is that the Gentiles who have no necessarily physical history with the nation of Israel just come right on in, sit at the table like we've always belonged here, not arrogantly, not presumptively, but gratefully and thankfully and humbly. We approach the table and there are people who have been sitting here for centuries and we're just eating our food. And God's going, they belong just as much as the rest of you. All the promises I made to you and your fathers now apply to them. The same body you're a part of, the same blessings you have through my son, the Messiah, I'm giving it to them as well. This would have been categorically um, absurd for some people. Just absurd. This is, no, this is unacceptable. Which is why you see Acts, you know, the Acts of the, the Holy Spirit technically, but the Acts of the Apostles, throughout that narrative of the early church, you see a lot of this, a lot of this exposed. And I know you're wondering, how does this, what does that have to do with the kingdom? Because being born again means way more. You can spend your whole life boiling being born again to just have the spirit and then you can live life and go to heaven that's fine but i'm someone that would like to know the deeper truths and understanding and revelations behind what god has done why he's done it how he's done it because that just gives me more appreciation for what he's done which will produce thankfulness in me and i'll live different Romans eleven seventeen through 18 is probably the passage everyone's been waiting me to get to. It says, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, not among national Israel, but among spiritual Israel, those who had the faith of Abraham and they were physical Israelites, you're grafted in among them. And now you share in the nourishing root, which everyone wants to know. What's the root? What's the root? The very simple answer is Jesus and what he represents, but we could spend a lot more time on that. I'm not going to today. Let me know in the comments if one day you want me to tackle that. The point is not to address the root, but the root of the olive tree. He says, you are grafted into that. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, speaking to you, non-Jews, if you are, remember, it is not you who supports the root. The root supports you. So whatever we're grafted into, whatever we come into, there's an already existing root. There's an already existing tree. There are already existing branches. And it's as if the great vine dresser, the cosmic vine dresser himself, chops some branches off a wild olive shoot and goes, I'm going to graft these into this tree that has been here for centuries as if it's always belonged for bam. And then he'll talk about branches were broken off. What does that mean? The kingdom was taken from national Israel. As a whole, unbelieving national Israel and given to who? A people producing its fruits, which includes believing Jews and Gentiles. And the nourishing root is what supports us. Probably the best way to explain this passage is just to read this Big Mama passage. This is the Big Mama's house of Bible passages. We're just going to read it. I have to. It just explains so much, and then we're about done. Galatians three fifteen through twenty nine. You read that correctly. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man made covenant, no one annuls it, voids it, or adds to it once it's been ratified. You cannot alter a ratified covenant. Okay? Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. National Israel or spiritual Israel. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, multiple. Referring to many, but referring to one. So, watch this. God made promises to Abraham and his offspring. And you go, all his children. No. He's talking about one. He's talking about Christ. Talking about Christ. This is what I mean. Watch. The law, which came 430 years afterward, 
After God made this promise to Abraham, the law doesn't void or annul a covenant God previously ratified as if to make the promise void. In other words, even when the law comes in, the promise God made to Abraham through faith, where he declares Abraham righteous by faith, and all the promises of God for Abraham applied to his seed, that promise wasn't void because the law came in and now it's a new plan. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring, being Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. So God is making a promise to Abraham, but it's it's as if he's just talking to his son through Abraham. You ever delivered a message for someone who's right next to you? And you're like, just just talk to them, man. I don't want to talk anymore in between. Just talk to them. That's kind of what's happening. God speaks to his son, makes a promise through Abraham. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Okay. Referring to the law that was put in place. In other words, the law is only there and it functions the way it does. And it, in that season of human history, it does what it does until he shows up. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. This is where we get into Jesus needing to be God to save and needing to be man to represent us. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Heck no. For if a law had been given that could give life, righteousness would have been by the law. God wouldn't be messing around with these promises going, I've just I got promises waiting for you, but here, play with the law for a little bit. It could save you, but you're never going if, to. If the law could give life, then there would be, be no need for the promise. But the scripture referring to the law here imprisoned everything under sin. The law condemns. The law exposes. The law declares someone judged, condemned, penalized, incapable of meeting the standard of God and in need of help. And the law points us to the one who can save so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Did you catch it? Maybe you didn't catch it. The scripture imprisons everything until the right time, until Jesus comes. Bam! Now the promise God made to the son through Abraham can be given to those who believe. Because someone named Jesus has accomplished all that needed to happen for those promises to flow into our lives. It's as if the promises of God were stopped up. Jesus comes in, breaks that dam open, and it flows, I don't think I'm cussing, and it flows into our life now because of what he's done. They can be released into humanity. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. So you go, what does it mean that the law imprisoned everything? Literally humanity as a whole. Jew, Gentile, didn't matter what your gender, age, ethnicity, what you identify as, what are your pronouns, didn't matter. All humanity is held captive under the law, imprisoned, enslaved, until the coming faith would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. In other words, the way the law functioned in the history and that season that it functioned for the nation of Israel as the kingdom of Israel, that has somewhat dissipated. And now in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Remember in the beginning, I brought you to this one passage and I said, take note of putting on Christ, the promise, Abraham, all of that. It all collides here in this passage. As many of you as were baptized, immersed into Christ spiritually, have put on Christ. Why does he mention that? Because we're right back to where we started. If there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you're all one in Christ. If you are Jesus's, if you belong to him, if you are his treasured possession and the child of God through faith, then you're Abraham's offspring too. And you now have every right to the promises God made 
to the patriarchs and mainly about the son. You have every right to that now because you're an heir according to the promise. And it's not that you're entitled. It's not that you deserve and earned and worked. It's that Jesus has given you the right to become children of God, to claim the promises of God, to be an heir of the estate of the Father, and to be grafted into the spiritual tree of spiritual Israel. Hebrews 6, 11 through 12 talks about inheriting the promises. And I want to take you there real quick. It says, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith, which we'll see in Hebrews 11, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Meaning, part of inheriting the fullness of what God has promised and enjoying the fully realized kingdom in new creation means there's going to be a degree of endurance, patience, and suffering that's going to come, acro- come along with that. So just a few passages to show you that we are indeed co-heirs, born-again children of God, heirs of the promise and the estate and the inheritance. Colossians 1.12 says that we should be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's the idea of Romans 11, being grafted into the already present tree. God has looked at you graciously and said, I will qualify you to share the inheritance of my people. And that inheritance goes well beyond our imagination, like I'm telling you. So we should be thankful. Do you qualify yourself? Do you earn it? Do you make God go, you know what? You No, he qualifies you despite what you can or can't do. But you receive the kingdom, the son, and even the, the qualification, you might say, through faith. Titus 3.7 says, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So as heirs, we have a hope. And, and the world's definition of hope is wishful thinking. Biblical hope is absolute assurance something is going to happen. It's guaranteed. It's eager expectation. According to the hope of eternal life, that hope is only for those who have been justified by grace. Because when you are justified by the grace of God, he declares you innocent and righteous and holy. You become heirs. God could have stopped at the whole righteous part. God could have stopped at the whole, you're forgiven, you're blameless, there's no transgression. But he went beyond that and said, I'm not just going to declare you innocent of your crimes. I want to make you heirs of all that my son is going to inherit. Galatians 4, 7 says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. The last thing I want to point out is this. When it comes to the kingdom of God, number one, God's kingdom is not inherited by everyone. Number two, God's kingdom is inherited by his children. It's given as an inheritance. It's portioned out by the Father as a gift. God's kingdom is given to those who have the faith of Abraham and are spiritual Israel. And if you're spiritual Israel in Christ, who is the true heir, then all these things come together when you're born again. And since we're co-heirs with Christ through faith, and we're inheriting a kingdom, that's what it says, the kingdom has to be inherited. You have to be given the right to access, enter into this kingdom. That's going to come with a degree of suffering in this life. No one wants to hear this, but it has to be said. Romans eight sixteen through 17. In light of all that God has done for us and given to us, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God himself. That's insane. And we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. In context, the main component of our inheritance that he's focusing on is being glorified. 
And the road to glorification involves suffering the way Jesus did. Persecution, loss, sacrifice, all the different things you can think of that fit under those categories. 2 Thessalonians 1.5, it says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's the idea, is that us enduring suffering is, is us living what Paul would say, worthy of the gospel, worthy of what God has done, worthy of the kingdom of God. And the suffering that comes with this life. Being in the kingdom of God doesn't make you exempt from suffering. It might actually amplify the troubles and tribulations and difficulties and hardships that life has to throw at you. It might actually increase that. But the fact is, he's worthy of our endurance. He is. Regardless of what happens here or what doesn't happen, we're a part of a greater kingdom. This is the last passage, Acts 14, 22. I know we looked at like 3,000 passages today. This is what Paul did. He strengthened the souls of the disciples. This is what he would do. He would go travel around the churches that were established and visit people. And he'd strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, look, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when you read these passages, you might think, you might think that the Bible teaches you have to suffer enough to be worthy of entering God's kingdom. No, believing in the kingdom or in Jesus is what grants you access into the kingdom. You inherit the kingdom. And part of that now you're signing up for is an increased degree of suffering that the road to life is just paved with. This is what Matthew 7 touches on. The narrow gate versus the wide gate. So in conclusion, the spiritual kingdom of God can only be inherited, can only be received by those who've been born again to become children of God through faith because of what Jesus has done as the true heir of all things. And he's given us his promises. He's grafted us in to all that he's made true and possible and realized for us so that now we can say we are a part of the kingdom of God as his beloved children. And then Monday, we'll look at Jesus as the king. Jesus as the king. And what it looks like for him to really rule and all the different things that come with that. All right? Most of you guys already know this, but let me remind you, this is above reproach ministry, so let me bring my window on over so you can see it. We have a bunch of free resources at abovereproachministry.com. I'm not going to go through them today. You know, the online church, devotional studies, online Bible study courses, worksheets, sermon notes, all of that is completely free because of generous supporters like you guys. Um, you can get a copy of my book. You can get some merch. You can donate right here and give to this ministry because we exist to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And so I hope that today's understanding and revelation and truth <clears throat> profoundly impacts you and changes the way you live forever and really reveals God to you in a way you've never seen. Hey, thanks for listening to today's message. I need your help. Would you rate this podcast and give it an honest review to let others know what they can expect from this podcast? It would really help us in reaching more people with the truth of God's word. And be sure to check out AboveReproachMinistry.com for all of our free resources, like trainings, Bible courses, worksheets, our online church, and much more. Thanks again for listening to this podcast and leaving a good review for others.